0: Chad, bro, bro, did you hear about this new startup called Vapor? I just led the round day investment and it's going to be massive. We're talking an ultra disruptor. Uh, d- dude, it's like ephemera as a service, dude. Like it only exists at random times and then it just like doesn't exist. It's so cutting edge nobody can even really explain what it does. It just blew my mind like... <laughs> We valued it at $420 million for a 69% stake. Nice. You know, I've been
1: I've been eyeing this real sick startup lately. It's called Potemkin. Check this. All right. AI as a service, right? You need something analyzed? We got it. A strange-sounding language, a suspicious face, some complex set of racist data. We know how expensive it can get to build, train, run algorithms, so we got you. You know, I don't want... I want 40% of my investment going to AWS. You feel me? But here's the kicker, right? There's no AI. There's none. It's just humans. There's people, man. We got 50,000 contractors in Southeast Asia. We got 10,000 in the US of A, baby. And we got 10,000 in Europa. That's the whole world, man. That's the whole world.
2: Oh,
0: shit, dude. Now, that's a global village I want to move into. Yo, yo, all right. So so here's this new unicorn I've been watching really closely. It's called Gulag. It's like this new joint that's like a collab between Founders Fund and SoftBank, bro. Gulag is an ultra exclusive social network. It's like Facebook meets Clubhouse, but for the radical left. It's like a secret place for all the Biden supporters and Bernie bros and Antifa to gather. I'm 100% positive it's going to be acquired by Ali Uber, so now's the time to invest, my man.
1: That's sick. That's that's real clear-headed, bro. You know, I've been thinking. <clears throat> I've been thinking. You know, let's get frisky. Let's get crazy. Let's make a blank check company, man. It's time. <clears throat> you know, me and you, we've met. We've been investing for a few years. You know, we've done some rounds. Mm-hmm, we've made mm-hmm. some sick products, market fit. You know, I think it's time. I think it's time, man. You know, IPOs, jejun. Direct listing, jejun. That's Neanderthal shit. But SPACs, man. Yo, let's 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 make our own IPO. Let's raise fifty billion dollars from private equity funds and let's just spend it. Let's just go crazy. Let's get e-commerce companies, micro mobility, let's buy a let's buy a trailer pump, you know? Whatever we want, whatever we want, and we'll get sick of it.
0: SPACs. SPACs. Yes, man. Hello friends and enemies. It's episode eight of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy as always. This week we're joined by the author of an excellent new book, Abolish Silicon Valley, How to Liberate Technology from Capitalism. Wendy Liu is here. Thanks for coming on the pod, Wendy.
2: Thanks for joining me. I've been enjoying most of the episodes so far. I
0: uh, haven't listened so to them all yet, but I plan to. <laughs> That's, that's, a, that's all right. It's a, it's, 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 an undertaking. Our episodes are not short. They're not quibbies. They're not quick bites. <laughs> <laughs> the, these are, these are, these are long bites. But
1: <laughs> well, we're in, we're in a production deal with Quibby. Don't tell, uh.
0: Don't oh, tell you weren't back. supposed, you weren't supposed <laughs> to drop that yet. Nope. What nope. about our NDA with Quibby? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> Fuck it. Uh, so Wendy, uh, we were talking before the before we started recording that uh, you were one of the first people that Ed and I both said we wanted to get on the podcast when we were planning everything and getting it started. Um, your book is is really great, uh, but also like we really wanted to get you on to talk about the insanely stupid and toxic culture of venture capital. Um, Something that I know you take one for the team and follow, and are very aware of what's going on in all of these this this pantheon of villains uh, in the VC world.
2: You know, it's funny because there was a time when I would like obsessively read everything about these guys, just because I was so fueled with this hatred. And now I'm just kind of like, I'm not learning anything new. These people are all just stupid in the same kind of boring way. Um, the The way I've come to think about venture capital as a class is that. Morally, they're like vultures. Uh, psychologically, they're children. And then intellectually, they're clowns. And so there's just not that much to be learned mm-hmm. from seeing what they're talking about, what gets them mad. You're just kind of like, it's like seeing a toddler having a tantrum. You're like, all right, all right, let's move on. But yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a fun thing for, to talk about, just partly because it's like a distraction from how horrible everything is. Because, yes. you know, <laughs> the world is burning. Um, Society is collapsing. But at least we can laugh at these guys who think that they're geniuses.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah like, i mean that, that that's such a perfect that's such a perfect summation of, of their entire character wow. children and clowns vultures <laughs> right
1: and i think it's it's also like really something that you know sometimes i wonder how much the uh the industrial model that they've kind of built and and cling to and you've talked about in your book has like socialized them or how much like only people like that are going to be able to thrive um, in that sort of um, environment where you're constantly raising money and constantly like selling people on some harebrained scheme and constantly like making fake connections with people or uh, or networking or doing whatever you need to do to like chase a return and uh, change the world. <clears throat> as some of them believe, but in most, but in a lot of cases, just make money. You know.
2: Yeah, I definitely feel that. I think that, you know, to some degree, I feel I feel bad for these people and it's maybe not fair for me to criticize them the way the way that I am, like on this kind of No, keep it going. <laughs> no, it is. No, no, it is. It's, just, it's, it's just like, you know, it's I almost pity them because they're kind of forced to be the way they are in order to succeed in that environment, to have the kind of platform and success that they do. It is very hard to be successful in this kind of industry, in any kind of industry, really, while also... Clinging to your morals to, to any sort of meaningful moral framework, and also you know having a sense of yourself as like just another person in a larger society as opposed to an individual you know trying to become a god or something I think there's something about um, venture capital, especially but really just late capitalism in general, that conditions people to behave in a way that is you know bad for them that is bad for their soul and it turns them into these just kind of horrible selfish individuals like the I don't know the the Ayn Randian fantasy of the self-interested mm-hmm. individual and that's not good for anyone especially these people themselves
0: yeah I, I mean I know as like good materialists we have to be like our conditions kind of you know shape who we are and how we behave but I do wonder like in a you know, in in a socialist world in the communist future, like would Paul Graham or Mark andreessen be like better people would they be good people or would they just or would they just be like these really you know awful um, you know, have a you know corruption of the soul, but just not have positions of power and influence in that kind of world, right? So it's like, it's like, you know, do, uh, do their conditions create them? Or do they thrive because they are the kind of people that are able to thrive in those conditions?
2: That was a great question. I would love to find that out. I would,
0: I would like to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, let's get I'm, there. Pulling, I'm pulling out my calipers for this episode. I'll measure, <laughs> I'm, I'm measuring the VC skull. I'm, I'm probing their brain. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, going, I'm going. phrenology on these motherfuckers. That's make.
1: Yeah. You, you ever see um, Django Unchained? Yeah. Cool. yeah. 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 Uh, oh, that scene. There's a scene where, like, uh, the you know, the premise of the movie is this guy who's a slave gets freed by a bounty hunter and he wants to rescue his wife and the bounty hunter trains him to do so after they'd gone some contracts and um, they get to this ranch and it's like, you know, at a, at a point where they get caught, this guy takes out a skull and starts doing phrenology at the fucking table. And I, and I feel, <laughs> just imagine like crashing one of their parties, the clubhouse <laughs> party bringing out the VC skull and pointing out where these where the certain dimples mean that they're thin skin and other dimples mean that they're uh, dopamine seeking and so they are unable to think of anything beyond themselves for like the next five minutes
0: although although the reality of the situation is that it would be the vcs bringing out the skull at the oh yeah. Party yeah and doing for knowledge you, you
1: know why you don't have 500 million dollars Ed? Let me, let, me, let me open up this skull for you and show you that part of your brain that you,
0: you lack.
2: That's going to be the next part of Uber's um, Prop 22 campaign. They're just going to do that okay. with all of their workers and be like, this is why this person doesn't deserve to make minimum wage.
0: It's, this is why yeah. they don't
2: deserve a union.
0: They don't have
1: the dimple.
0: <laughs> don't have dem- right, it's, so it's great that you brought up the Prop 22 campaign because mm-hmm. this brings this brings me to Exhibit A in in our in our traveling roadshow of the VC freak. <laughs> oh God! So, yeah. So if if you if you were to go onto Twitter and do a search from Paul G, who you know Paul Graham, and and quote Teamsters, you will pull up. <laughs> a surprisingly long list of tweets that Paul G has, has, has sent out about how the AB five is a teamster conspiracy. I love it. I love that. Like, you know, he's been, like, yo, he's been tweeting the that since January, <laughs> since January, he's been tweeting about how the team, how AB five is just a conspiracy by the teamsters to capture um, Uber and Lyft drivers. And like, look, ca- like, like net them, like net these drivers, and like you know, imprison them in the 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 you know in, in the in the union.
1: <laughs> There's a part of uh, the Irishman where they're talking to each other, and he tells the Irishman, "He's like, look, you gotta tell Hoffa that you know it is what it is. If if they can, can whack, whack a the president, president, they can they whack, whack a president the president of the, of the union, and it's just like they can whack the president, and they can whack American freedom, they can whack liberty and and flexibility, and Teamsters is gonna. They're going to destroy the labor market in um, in California. You know, I think, but I do think it's interesting that he that there has emerged this narrative among them that uh, that that labor unions are constructing a new law. When in reality, who has created the law as it stands right now? It's been the it's been the VCs and their and their vessel for capital accumulation through Uber and Lyft. They created the definition. Of what a, tran- a TNC, a, a transport network company is, right? That's their law that they wrote that all the, con- that California, most of the uh, states in this country follow, right? It's their, it's their influence that has constructed the law. So I think it's a little, it's, it's interesting that that projection is going on. Yeah, <laughs> you know. and I, th-
2: I think what's kind of especially interesting about that is that it's, it's not like that, you know, these PCs themselves are the ones who wrote the laws and they forgot about it. It's more that they're mm-hmm. kind of just picking back, piggybacking off of others' work and they don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. But they're just taking advantage of, of a political and economic environment that is designed to favor people like them. And they don't even think about that as anything other than just how the way things are. This is just natural. This is just free market capitalists. Like, no, this was a project, a political project over especially the last 40 years, but even before that, that created you and your, your your class, and you don't even think of that as a special interest. But the Teamsters, mm-hmm. on the other hand, oh, yeah, they're destroying innovation. But I think what's, what's kind of funny about that is, like, there is a really strong critique of the Teamsters and other unions from the left, from, you know, actual, like, mm-hmm. union activists who've been trying to reform these unions from within. Mm-hmm. Paul Graham doesn't know any of that. He's not engaging with that, because oh. if he were, he would recognize that the people who are trying to Tackle the issue of corruption within labor unions. They're also leftists. Like they, they don't want the same thing as he does. And so, it's so funny to see him go kind of like QAnon brain, but for the Teamsters. Because I'm like, what? Well, do you know? Do you know anything about unions, like Paul? Like, have you have you read anything about them? Written by actual like union members or ac- academics? But yeah,
0: I mean, no. the answer is yeah. no, and I, I don't. I don't think that these people actually read anything. Right? Like, the, like they are they are told things yeah uh, mm-hmm. you know, and 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 like that 's if you look at paul 's tweets about this that 's explicitly what he says where he 's like um, i asked quote i asked someone who knows about uh c a state politics, and the source of a b five was the teamsters who wanted to ca-. so so it 's all this like I was right. told or someone told me or i i asked right and and it is that it is a very conspiratorial way of of thinking and like citing your sources um but that 's what but that It also just feeds into, like, that's the whole decision-making process of venture capital. It is these, like, cults of personality. It's, like, extremely, uh, you know, it's this extreme autocracy um, where it is, like, you know, it's all just based on feelings. (laughs) It Mm. really is.
2: Yeah, and I think that you you, you can't necessarily, like, blame someone like Paul Graham or any of these people for defaulting to believing in these sources because that is how they get deal flow, right? That is Mm -hmm. how they decide is this company worth investing in? It's like, oh, you know, someone told me that this founder is actually, you know, lying or something, or someone told me that this founder is actually amazing. Cool. I don't have any evidence except what people are saying and my feelings. But that is like the only way they kind of get by um, because that is what it is at the end of the day. It's just venture capital is about taking a risk and you don't necessarily, you can't know what's going to happen. And so they kind of have to rely on their feelings in a way that I think makes them unqualified to judge like everything else. Mm. They might be good at picking out founders sometimes, but it makes it hard for them to have, like, a grip on reality.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it's this irony that, you know, their brains operate like art- like artificial intelligence and in that they are just correlation-seeking machines. So mm-hmm. it's like, it, it, you know, it's like when, when Zuckerberg, you know, became, like, this this major breakout star with Facebook, it's like for the next five years... All VC capital was just flowing to like white, you know, college dropouts wearing hoodies, <laughs> you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like no causation, there, you know, no analysis, just pure correlation, pure AI this, mechanical thinking.
1: This also maps onto you know, there's a book. Um, it's like VC in American History by Tom Nichols, and you know, it attempts to trace out the nature of a VC, or the one, a literal history of it, but two, also like what um, specific implements of VC have allowed it to succeed and how did they develop, right? And, you know, a key insight, I think, from there is how much, you know, venture capital has relied on these networks, you know, like you were talking about, Wendy, um, that a lot of people rely on information that they can get immediately so, or they Cultivate networks for the goal is to like funnel to them as much information as possible, whether that is on if an investment is good or like whether they can get out from an investment that they know is bad or that they suspect is bad or is found out to be bad, and that these networks also these information networks also just end up being like really insular social circles. And if there it's an insular social circle, then it's an insular like ideological group. Right. And so they end up repeating, believing, socializing each other, reinforcing like the same narrow sets of beliefs um, and falling for each other's stuff and amping up each other's stuff um, in ways that are like hard for them to, that are hard for anyone, even on the outside to like intervene. And in, unless it's like, dissolve you know because vc is in of itself not like some egalitarian you know enterprise right the premise of it re- requires people who are well connected which means they're going to be like you know, predominantly white men, wealthy, which means, or with a significant amount of capital or the ability to convince people to give up capital. So they're going to come from a narrow social class. So it, it's like all the ways in which VC is successful also end up being self-selecting or, or select for and pressure for like odious people or behaviors that turn them into odious people that then get reflected in like the types of companies also that get propped up, right?
2: Yeah, and I I like that you brought up that book. I haven't read it yet, but uh, from what I understand, it talks about whaling as Mm -hmm. kind of the precursor of Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, you know, there's something, if you look at that closely, there's something that's kind of just this horrific metaphor because what is whaling? What is the whole whaling industry about? Well, you go out and you take this beautiful animal and then you just kill it. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, it's this act of glory. It's this act of conquering nature. Um, And then, you know, obviously the result is horrific because then the population of this animal is driven towards extinction, but then people are making money from it. So who cares? And, you know, unfortunately that is not a bad metaphor for just how the whole industry works now, because it presumes a certain attitude towards, um, what is, what is valuable, like what is a valuable venture? Uh, and that I think is grounded on a, a kind of contempt for, for nature, for certain kinds of people, right? Like, you know, the the people who are working on these ships, they're expendable. No one really cares if they live or die, Mm -hmm. as long as you have enough of them. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, that is indicative of just how the industry today operates, unfortunately, um, in that it's just, it is actually pretty horrific in ways that are similar to the way, you know, whaling was horrific. And the good thing about whaling is that somehow it was possible to kind of curb that industry and there were protections and you know, the whale population is, seems like it's starting to rebound. So that's, that's better than before. But with Silicon Valley, unfortunately, you have people making the argument that there's like, we just have to kind of keep doing this. If the companies that are being funded are bad, we just need to fund more companies. If the VCs are, you know, terrible people, we just need to get a slightly more diverse group of VCs. Um, It's like, no, what if we just kind of like killed this industry entirely? Just had a yeah, different
0: they, way. There's a Doing There's things. a Nasdaq whale I would like to um <laughs> <up> to extinction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> no, I think. <laughs> yeah, legend. Um, yeah, I think the, the whaling metaphor is really key because it's like whaling to kill a whale is also a pretty gruesome thing. I mean, whales are large creatures. You need to harpoon them. In certain places, or repeatedly, it's a very like so. It's a pretty brutal. You see them writhe and die in agony. There's no question about that, right? The only question that emerges, and that gets thought about, mediated, and solved for, is how do you kill it as much fast as possible? How do you melt down or sell the fat of the whale as fast as possible? And how do you preserve the bones and bring them back? Not how do you. Um, stop killing whales or what level is necessary to preserve the whale population, but not go crazy with killing them. Or how do you keep the crew safe from, from storms? Or how do you ensure that even if it returns without a profit as almost like 70% of them did, they are still getting paid or compensated for the fact that they're staying out for weeks or months at a time on failed voyages. None of that factors in. And similarly, some of the most like, Ridiculous places where capital gets parked are ones where no one's asking, like, how do we make this better for the worker? It's like, okay, we need to make a return. How do we like reduce as much as possible uh, labor costs while increasing the amount of money while preventing drivers from leaving in the case of Uber and 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 passengers from staying or or any sort of arrangement in the gig economy, but also the larger VC, you know, uh, environment. Right? These moral questions. Yeah. P- has never come
0: up yeah and i mean with the with the modern V I i mean i like drawing this historical connection um to yeah these welling ships as the original kind of startups that these that these you know um capitalists were, were funding these ventures um but but if we you know i mean we could even we could even you know expand that out it's, you know america was was actually founded on vc right i mean yeah yeah well if you think about yeah. it columbus was the was the first founder um right. and and you know the king of spain was the first vc he was an angel he was an angel vc actually because he got yeah yeah VAR he was, he was an like... angel investor i mean he was angel because he was i mean he was ordained by god to be, <laughs> <you know>? so, <laughs> But but if we we draw this uh, distinction and and make the connection to the modern time, the the nature of risk in these ventures is fundamentally different, right? So it's like with the whaling ships, there actually was a really high percentage of failure. Like you were saying, like, you know, 70, 80% of these ships um either like catastrophically failed like you know they they sunk and the crews died or whatever mm-hmm. or they just didn't successfully um harpoon some wells mm-hmm. but but now i mean they've the you know the vcs in silicon valley have been able to create a system um in which there there essentially is no gambling there is no risk there is no betting right they've built the casino and then they're placing bets in their own casino, right? Like like they, like they are able to, by investing in something, they create valuation, right? So they create the, the value by the fact that they are giving something money, which is just absurd,
1: right? It's so circular. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, like some of the largest IPOs that have happened or are going to happen, right? Are of companies that they're never going to be profitable in any real sense, in any like, tantalizing sense but their value is that they they mow through regulations right or they revolutionize from the perspective of some of these people they revolutionize things and streamline it and get the government out of your life and uh, regulations that reduce consumer welfare and impose all these arbitrary places where the government can extract fees from licenses from fares from um from standards that have to be adhered to, from like regulations about your supply chain or your working standards, blah blah blah. You know, like you remove those, you just let the free market engine ride, right? And and if a company also happens to control the whole thing and extract fees at every point, I mean, that's just the free market. You know?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that's the thing that makes um, the tech industry so interesting, especially post SoftBank, because of the way mm-hmm. they've just like poured all this money into it. Is that You know, it turns these conventional ideas of what a business is upside down in a way that's hard for like people who are not in tech to really understand. And I think you know, people who are in tech and understand it, it's it's not because it's good. It's because like our brains are so rotted by this stupid structure that we're like, oh yeah, this is normal. But I mean, we have to remember, like, this is actually just a really weird. It doesn't really make sense to I don't know, um, glorify a company like Uber while also saying like free the free market is good. You can't really have both those things at the same time. And it's it's like Mm -hmm. a very weird system where it's just full of contradictions in a way that capitalism has always been full of contradictions. But I think these contradictions really come to a head when you look at these unprofitable companies that are probably never going to make a profit unless something changes drastically. But at the same time, they're sucking up so much value, so much, you know, so much value, so much surplus value, I guess, that's been, you know, sloshing around these um, sovereign wealth funds or like banks or wherever. And it's just, it's getting, we're getting to the point where the economy is just so fantastically different from what, you know, most people would think of as the economy, like what they think, would think of as a good economy. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, after a while you get to the point where it's harder to legitimate everything that's happening. You can't really convince people that like, oh yeah, when when Uber's stock price goes like this, that's good for you. Um, right. like no that doesn't really seem good for me because i have to work for this company and i get paid like three dollars an hour so i think yeah what we're seeing is just like it only, you can say like kind of the natural tendency of capitalism to just become more and more horrific over time in a way that's like really weird but now i think what's special about silicon valley is how there's this ideology of just this is just the best way of doing things and these are the smartest guys in the room and you have to trust them like with they say Uber is worth this much money, it's because they're really smart and they know stuff you don't, which right. is pretty similar to what was going on with Wall Street, and we all know how well that turned out.
1: Right, I think that's why I think VC is like also a really important part of the financialization story. I mean, people kind of talk about how like you know venture capital funded gig companies in the wake of the Great Recession uh, that you know took advantage of the fact that people didn't really have stable incomes to then work for them but also like you know in the larger scheme of things if you have in the in the wake of deindustrialization and austerity as people are shifting more into like assuming large and large debts you have the financialization and speculation of the uh, speculation of those debts and then you have venture capital well, in some cases or in other cases, large tech companies, just like coming in and providing low zero cost services to people without like disposable income or without secure jobs, right? To, to come onto the platform, give up themselves, work without dignity or unilaterally have all their data stolen in, in one way or another that gives these companies value beyond everything else in the real economy. Right. Because they're positioning themselves as middlemen, not in the sense that like they can. Well, I mean, we'll talk in one one interpretation of the middleman idea, but like in the sense that like these companies sit at the sit in an economy that is like sluggish, full of debt, full of like uh, underemployment and offer something that everyone can at least escape to or figure out a way to maybe escape from unemployment, underemployment, or debt by making mm. something else, right? And it's just, uh, it feels like a ticking time bomb, you know? Because I think not only does that have material consequences and just like creating a larger, larger speculative bubble, but like what does it do to people's minds and and hopes and dreams and spirits in which we live in a world where the most exciting edge of development and innovation is like, uh, various schemes built on smartly moving around people who need work, right? And yeah, I
0: as mean, much money. I mean, I'm 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 never one to have much sympathy for any of these people, right? But but it does create a it does create a condition that is oh, I mean, um, psychic
1: psychic damage to the workers to the people, not the not the VCs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, to
0: the to the workers, but it does also create a conditions. That are that are truly psychically traumatizing to these um, quote unquote founders as well, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. so, like yeah, like I said, I, I'm not one to have sympathy for them, but but reading your book, Wendy, really gave a um, this this kind of view into into that world of the the young, hungry um, founders who 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 desperately, desperately want to please the VCs and please the accelerators and, you know, and they just do whatever they can. And it, it almost mirrored this aspect of, um, the way in which like the workers on working on these platforms like Uber, delivery, whatever, um, are controlled by these completely black box algorithms. And so they're always trying to find ways to not game the algorithm, but just figure out what it wants, right. Uh, the, without ever knowing what it wants. And, and I, and, and your book, Kind of made me feel like that's also how these like these 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 entrepreneurs, these exalted entrepreneurs and founders, are kind of trapped in the same the same rat race with the VCs kind of you know being, lording over them, being these puppet masters.
2: Yeah, I think one kind of strange byproduct of the times we live in is that you know we're in this massive socioeconomic system that doesn't have a single person pulling the strings, right? It's just, it was kind of set in motion over a pretty long period of time. There are people who have more power than others, but no one is really, you know, deciding how things are. And so we're all in these positions where we're just trying to like make do in the system. And we're, you know, we're trying to follow the incentives that we see in front of us. We're trying to make judgments about what's good and what's bad based on the, the things that we see with our like very flawed, you know, imperfect ways of judging things. And so we end up doing things that seem rational to ourselves but to another person don't seem rational and I think the I like that you have the comparison you made you know with like a founder versus just someone who's trying to please an algorithm because I do think there is something similar even though the levels of you know like the working conditions are actually very different but for someone who's a founder or you know a software engineer or someone who has theoretically like a privileged position under capitalism they're still kind of suffering they're still you know they, they don't know what's going on. They're trying to make themselves into the kind of people that they think they have to be because maybe because, you know, they have this idea of themselves as being really good at something and people are saying like, oh, you're so good at this. You need to just keep doing this. And they're like, oh, I, I guess I don't really like this, but this is apparently what's valuable. Like I'm getting paid for it. So maybe this is good. Um, there's a story about, so there's this book about Twitter, hatching Twitter, um it was written about the early days of Twitter. And I remember this exchange with um Jack Dorsey, where Jack Dorsey is painted as this guy who doesn't really want to be like working at a startup. He, you know, was interested in fashion. He wanted to make clothes. And, you know, his uh co founders were kind of like, dude, you gotta you gotta like stop daydreaming, you gotta stop like leaving work early, and you have to focus on the business. And he's like, Well, I just I just wanna like make make jeans. And you know, why why did they have to do this to him? Like I think in another world, someone like him would not be responsible for two different companies. Um, one of, you know, oh, both, yeah. both of which have, yeah. And it's just like, that doesn't make any sense. Why not just like let someone maybe do what they want, as opposed to kind of molding them into, you know, the perfect founder, the perfect entrepreneur, putting them in a position where they're responsible for things they shouldn't have to be responsible for just so that, you know, some other investors can, can get rich off. But I think this, it does bad things to the founders themselves, but it also creates this really toxic self-reinforcing system. And I think one of the reasons why it was so difficult for me to accept the critiques of the tech industry is because kind of like what we're saying earlier about VCs, there's this like VC brain, like a Silicon Valley brain that makes you completely disregard the criticism as just coming from like the haters. They're just jealous. Mm -hmm. All those like New York media people, you know, they're just sad because their industry is dying. So they lash out at tech people who are actually doers. it's like, that's, that's one of those things where it's like a cult or it's like, I don't know, QAnon or something where once you're in it, it's so hard to accept the critiques as being true. Cause you can always use some sort of defense mechanism to say that these people, the critiques are just, they're just wrong. They just don't get it. And mm-hmm. that's, I think really dangerous. And it means that even really, you know, thoughtful, considerate people, when they're placed in this system, they can become the kind of, I don't know, ho- toxic, horrible VCs that they look up to just because like, it's, it's hard not to. It, when you're in this bubble, how are you going to break out of it?
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and just as a side note, Jack, if you're listening, under socialism, you can make jeans. Well, yeah. hell and yeah, man. Make some jeans. In fact,
1: we know how much you have been trying to let the board let you go to Africa more. Dude, I will take you. I'll show you around Kenya, you know, just leave the company and help and help us, uh, you know, get socialism going. Be a fifth yeah. column. Actually, you don't don't even leave. Don't even leave the company. Just hit
0: us up on Signal. Slide into my DMs, Jack. We'll yeah. <laughs> talk. <laughs> so, so I, I um, what you were just bringing up, Wendy, as well, is 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 perfect because the the op, the apotheosis of this kind of like really toxic uh, this kind of victim complex that VCs have, right, where they see themselves somehow as. Victims of, uh, of of a media of a public. I mean, there's a lot of this kind of like echoes of like kind of like lying, fake news media, and you know, um, people don't understand us. And and the the apotheosis of that kind of toxic culture is in Clubhouse, which was this um uh this like startup kind of founded uh, like like a few months ago, um, not that long ago, it's kind of died down in terms of like the attention it's gotten. I'm sure it's still, I'm sure it's still rocking and rolling. And I'm sure it's still this site of, of like actually existing collusion between (laughs) among the, the VCs and the Technorati um, class. But, but Clubhouse is a, is a weird kind of social media app where it's, so it's like it's organized in these, uh, these like Virtual rooms, it's, it's super exclusive invite only. Um, I think last I saw it only had like a few thousand members, but those few thousand members are like some of the top shakers and movers in Silicon Valley in terms of like VCs and founders and, and, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, but it, it works in this way of like, like it's an audio social media. So it's like a big teleconference uh, basically. Um, but to to speak, you have to raise your hand in this virtual room um, and you have to get tapped by people that are already speaking um, to be more actively, partic- to, to more actively participate. So it really is replicating this idea of like, imagine uh you know a big group of people sitting around a circle watching you know Paul Graham and Mark Andreessen and Balaji Srinivasan, like just talking about whatever they want. And then, you know, you're, 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 you're in the corner, you're in the outskirts and you, you kind of meekly raise your hand, sir, sir, may I speak? May I speak? And they decide if you can speak or not. (laughs) It's reverse.
1: uh, It's like reverse Robert's rules, you know? Uh, probably, or like, or no, it's, it's reverse stack. It's like the reverse of what the DSA or like other lefty groups will do where it's like, okay, um, the most privileged people are allowed to speak. And if you raise your hand, we'll think about it. We'll do, we'll do like a calculation to figure out what your value to the conversation is going to be.
0: Yeah. I mean, basically I, I think about it as like gab, but for VCs. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah, I, I think there is there is something kind of um, – like almost, like, sad about that because you can kind of understand where they're coming from, why they want a space like that, because to them, they're just normal people who just want to chat with their buddies, right? right. Don't they deserve a space? But at the same time, like, the reason it feels kind of uh, garish and just vulgar to outsiders is, like, well, these are very, very, very powerful people. Right. And you know, there's, there's like this, I don't know, this gap that I think is it's, they can't see it themselves. They don't understand why people hate them so much. Um, and it's, you almost feel bad for them again. Like I keep coming back to this because they just don't get it when they, they, they want people to be grateful for everything they've done, but they don't, they choose not to try to like empathize with the people who aren't grateful to understand why they might not be grateful for them. It's just like, they just want the adoring masses to, you know, applaud their remove. And the second someone criticizes them, it's just like, how dare you? How dare you not give me the respect I deserve? Um, but I don't think they actually like respect other people enough for that, you know, to understand why they would not why they would act differently from how they'd imagine. And so it's this weird kind of, I don't know, tragic position they're in where they think they deserve respect from people, but they don't actually respect others enough. And and so, yeah, it's like it's it's probably a very lonely place. Although, you know, if you're with your buddies in Clubhouse, maybe it doesn't feel that lonely. You can just like talk shit talk like new york media people and you probably feel better that way but i think it's probably a very lonely place to be um just to not understand why everyone hates you so much and just like to not have any kind of framework from which you can judge that and you know actually understand what's going on without just jumping to knee-jerk conclusions about like haters
0: yeah, I mean, so like Clubhouse initially gained kind of public attention that, the you know, that this thing exists, um, in part because Andreessen Horowitz, you know, one of the premier VC firms um, in Silicon Valley, uh, invested in it and to the tune of a uh, of hundred million dollar valuation. Right. So it's was like, Oh, okay. Oh, now yeah. this, is, this is suddenly a $100 million company because which just exists as a kind of like literally like a virtual smoke filled room for these mm-hmm. people to, to talk in private. Right. It's a, it's a big, it's, it's just a big zoom or a big or a big group chat. Um, but 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 they wanted this kind of space where they could have complete power over who can who can join, who can speak. Um, and then shortly after that happened, it was used to organize a harassment campaign against Taylor Lorenz, um, the a journalist for for the New York Times um, who wrote an uh, wrote an article about Clubhouse. And then you know she was on Twitter um, talking about the founder of this like luggage company away that was having this like really public meltdown on Instagram about like very QAnon shit about like, yeah. <laughs> you know, about the fake news. Number media. Drops of shit. And, yeah. yeah. And, and so Taylor is just like, just tweeted a little bit about this and, and suddenly like, you know, these VCs went. Completely insane because and and used Clubhouse to organize a, a harassment campaign. Um, they were like offering like bounties paid in Bitcoin to <laughs> for like information and to get like retractions in the New York Times and you know things like that. Like just. Real, really, really psychopathic shit. Yeah. It also
1: doesn't help that, you know, I was thinking, their name is Clubhouse. There was a book that came out in, like, 2002, 2003, early 2000s, called, like, Unlocking the Clubhouse. And the book was about how there's, like, significant gaps in uh gender representation in computing and it was like an attempt to like do interviews on the history of that and it's like well y'all just have the same fucking name and the same exact problem there's nothing that's changed in almost 20 years in fact it's gotten worse because i i you know as horrible as the computing industry has been especially in terms of uh, g- gender disparities it's hard it's I can't I, I mean I'm sure that it, it happened but like I feel that there's also now like because of this this cloak of like New York media like an attempt to relegitimize like harassment campaigns like you said because like that sort of stuff is ridiculous and on the, and it it goes also beyond like you know like you're talking about Wendy our understanding of Clubhouse on some level is that like their immediate incentive is to have a space for themselves in what they view as a hostile media environment right but then the escalations that went on from there i think speak to the sort of isolation that you talked about where they're just alienated from the real world and from other people's ideas and like from away and also from a interest in trying to relate to other people to figure out and realize, oh shit, like I should not like be trying to dog, this person, <laughs> you know, and I should and, and, and be they,
0: offering Bitcoin, <laughs> and that they, they explicitly use the language of cancel culture, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like these CEOs are being canceled, and that's a right. bad thing. And you know, there's all these echoes of GamerGate, right? It, you know, mm-hmm. this is game this is GamerGate two but now uh, now it's VC funded, <laughs> you know? Right? And and so they they've, they've completely adopted this this kind of like alt right. Mindset and this alt right language about like SJWs and cancel culture and the the fake news media and all you know that they they. They've... They have been driven insane, like everyone, by the last four years. Um, but, but in a way that they are they are actualizing their true selves. <laughs> but you know, that's they they now see the writing on the wall, and they're like, "Oh, okay, we can just like we can go super mask Saiyan. <laughs> yeah, mask <laughs> off. We can go super sane. our power levels are over nine thousand, and right. no one can stop us. It's over nine thousand. What 9,000? The-
2: yeah, I think that the thing about Clubhouse is that like it it is a fun thing to talk about, but sometimes I, I do feel like um, you know, we spend so much time talking like we all have like think so much about just the kind of superficial cultural aspects of our current political moment. Um, you know, not to say that's bad, I think this is normal, but it just like it just sucks cuz we're thinking about Clubhouse and we should be thinking about, you know, the kind of actual flows of cash that enable it. Mm, and you know, exactly. how do these people get get into power in the first place? And I think You know, I don't care if these guys have their smoke-filled virtual room. They can have it. Let's just take away their power. Let's not Mm -hmm. let them. Let's not let these smoke-filled rooms represent anything more than just like their inane chatterings about whatever they want. Like I don't really care about if they have these private spaces. It's like the reason Clubhouse got a hundred million dollar valuation is because it is close to the halls of power. That is the reason. That you know, people want to be on it because they're like, oh, if I'm on Clubhouse, maybe this venture capitalist will invest in my next startup. And that mm-hmm. that is kind of the problem. And this kind of cultural stuff, I think, you know, I, I I totally understand why we have to talk about it, but it's just like I'm just so sick of it, you know, it's cause it feels I hear you. Yeah. it feels like a yeah. distraction. Um, but yeah, it just it just makes me angry the whole thing. I think it's like, you know, Clubhouse is a symptom of of this problem of just Silicon Valley. Uh being so powerful, being so wealthy, and yet not willing to accept the responsibility that should come with that kind of power. And instead, they're kind of just like, well, you know, we just we just want to do whatever we want. We don't want people to regulate us. We don't want people to criticize us. We just want you to, I don't know, just bow down to us as we roll out the next wave of apps that you mm-hmm. didn't ask for, but that are, you are going to have to pay for.
1: Right, you know, so, so something I've been... Also wondering about is, do you think that like, you know, to an extent, because like you said, like the with with Silicon Valley over the years, one of the main ways they've escaped criticism is by getting outrage cycles about cultural issues. Right. When like in the early, you know, when in the in the in the wake of the Great Recession, when like it like in retrospect, it's clear what problems we have now were emerging then. The main concern was about, like, how utopian you're allowed to be when you're talking about Silicon Valley and whether, like, they're going to allow protests and massive uprisings in countries under authoritarian rule or whether they're going to allow, like, a deepening of the democratic experiment in the United States. I'm curious if you think, like, that this constant outrage cycle about the cultural uh, contents of, like, their their program of their projects is like a part of a system maybe not like some conscious design like I I doubt anyone in some smoke-filled room is like we need to constantly have like cultural outrage but it feels like uh, such a clear consequence of the way they're structured we're like every year every few months we're having like a very huge fight about a cultural uh, issue that ends up Distracting, obscuring, delaying discussion about the underlying power dynamics, about who holds the money and who's mm-hmm. uh, you know, holding the purse strings, and who's driving the money into various spaces or out of various spaces.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to blame everything on neoliberalism, but that does seem to be like kind of a hallmark <laughs> of it. You know what I mean? Where it's like you you can criticize, like you just can't criticize the system. You you can't you mm-hmm. can't question the the tenets of the system that drive everything because like, you know, the whole idea is that uh, the whole idea that drives our current era is that we live in capitalism. There's no alternative. The best we can do is maybe have some slightly different ways of rearranging it. Maybe we have some, some women and minorities and like positions of power, Mm. but ultimately the, the idea of, you know, the engine of capital accumulation, exploitation, wage labor, these are all kind of taken for granted and there's no getting around that. Getting around that. And so I think when it comes to Silicon Valley, it is difficult to critique it in like a more structural radical way when you're not used to critiquing anything in that way when mm-hmm. you know like especially look at the like liberal media critiques and maybe we'll talk about that in a bit but like most of the critiques of big tech have felt very much centered in this idea that what's wrong with tech is the culture what's wrong is the fact that it's just all these like harvard dropout men as opposed to, I don't know, women who went to other schools or something. And it's like, uh, it, it feels like it's just, it's not getting at the root of the problem. It's very superficial. It's very much like we just need different people. We need different cultures. We need people to wear suits instead of hoodies or whatever. I don't, I don't really get it. But yeah, and I think part of the problem is that um, we need deeper critiques. We're at a moment where it's not sufficient to just say, oh, we need more competition or we need more diversity or we need we need to like you know just break up these companies and like have a little more competition like that's that's not enough we're at a time when all of these different crises of capitalism are intersecting and if we're going to have like a critique of these companies that sticks it has to be grounded in a more radical alternative vision that is not just like yeah you know mark uh, mark Zuckerberg should, should be replaced by Sheryl Sandberg or something who has obviously right. enabled everything he's done
0: yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. I'm 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 raising the roof over here. I'm loving it. Uh, <laughs> when you when you said that clubhouse was a symptom, I mean that that took the words like directly out of my mouth because it, it's true and it is the symptom of of this mindset of, of having everything flowing downhill from culture. Which is very much the kind of like defining um framing of the current time, right? That like everything flows downhill from culture. But that's yeah, shout out so, to Breitbart. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean that's 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 so fundamentally anti-materialist in, in, in every single way, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it, you you can't have the superstructure under the base. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, salience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I think if, if, we wanna, if we want to draw the analogy, then if, if Clubhouse is the kind of the culture aspect of this, um, and if we want to invert that, that, you know, what's, what Clubhouse is downstream from the political economy, from the structure, mm. from capitalism. And so the analogy here um, is, is the, the boom of SPACs. Right. These special purpose acquisition companies. Right. That's that's like the political economic clubhouse <laughs> um, that, that we actually and actively need to be focusing on understanding how that works and who's involved in that and, and why these SPACs even exist. I'm going to throw it over to Ed. Um, tell us what SPACs are real quick and why they are um, awesome and, and, and oh yeah, truly, truly innovative.
1: I think SPACs, yeah, they have their own thing. And also they relate to this larger uh, – the larger environment of, like, funding for tech, right? So SPACs are basically – they're called shorthand, like, a blank check company. And then the full name is, like, Special Purpose Acquisition Company, right? So typically when a company wants to have its shares listed or wants to have uh, – wants to, you know, be treated, you know, do an IPO or direct listing, right? IPO is where it issues new shares, and um, it has underwriters in the form of investment banks who ensure that, like shares, are going to be uh, priced at a certain level. Uh, there's going to be a certain amount bought, and then also they'll have some weird speculative in- instruments to make sure that they can stabilize the price at a certain agree- agreed level, right? Um, direct listings are where you'll, you're not offering new shares, you're just going onto the market so that you give people who have an existing stake a chance to exit and then people a chance to buy in when those people exit. Uh, blank check companies are where instead of doing all that shit, me, Jathan, Wendy, you know, Jeremy, we're all going to go together and we're going to do our own IPO for this company. And we're going to tell investors we're just going to buy some shit, right? Give us some money and they'll give us $5 million, $100 million, $5 billion, and then we do that IPO itself. We're offering stakes in the company. We're offering a chance for new investors to come in and buy shares in that company. And then we use money generated from this IPO uh, to buy, to acquire a company, right? Whatever we end up doing. And these are end up being just like even more speculative vehicles for getting capital to like, you know, instead of having to worry about defeating um, or ex- beating expectations or pop of your IPO price or the con- the concerns of the public, you just buy the company, right? And you raise it for the explicit, pers- explicit purpose of raising enough money to buy a company. You have usually a few years before you have to give the money back if you don't buy that company. And I think this speaks to, you know, with, with, with SPACs, with VC, with, with financial capital and its influence in tech development and innovation, right? there has been in a, you know, the, the rhetoric and language these people talk about, I think Wendy, you did, your book was really great in, like, also laying out how a lot of people, when they are in the tech industry, are talking about and are concerned with and really do believe in their work driving innovation and driving development and being, like, the, the most logical path forward towards what needs to be built for people, right? But, like, these financial interests behind them are what are driving the development, and they're interested in returns, Often in really complicated and fantastical ways that are not for the interest the development of a technology or for the betterment of a group's social welfare. they're for the betterment of uh, returns on an investment, and that leads to like ants uh, contradictory and antagonistic outcomes. you know what's good for your investors and making sure that they have a return that beats what they would have gotten sitting on bonds. Or, and, or make sure that they get enough of a return where the management fee and all the other fees from parking the money in a fund are beat is not what you would do if you were solely interested in creating the best thing some mm. social problem to solve
0: and and this quest to constantly beat the return on bonds is like such mm-hmm. a core driver of these financial innovations and, and instruments because ultimately like most hedge fund hedge funds do not beat the returns on bonds no, they right? <laughs> and, and so, so they're constantly trying to figure out ways to just beat the return on passive capital sitting in a in a in a, in a safe bond and it makes it yeah, even harder I, because yeah all right i'll go ahead go for it sorry
2: a sorry yeah um no worries. i guess the what i was thinking of as i was like reading this article that you guys sent is just it's amazing how people find the time to keep innovating new ways to extract and then circulate claims to surplus value created by workers who are dying of coronavirus or getting terrorized mm-hmm. by like wildfires or ice and it's just like this is the the whole like, you know, playing the fiddle while the empire burns, right? Like these people are just, mm-hmm. they're coming up with these completely unnecessary, more abstract ways to just trade claims to money with each right. other. Well, all the people who are actually producing the value, they're just, they're suffering. They're getting evicted. They're sleeping in their cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nobody, they just don't care because it's not their job to care. Like this is kind of, this is, yeah, the apotheosis of financialized capitalism this is the best that capitalism has to offer us which is just like a bunch of people i don't know like uh republican senators and just like you know random hedge fund private equity guys Mm -hmm. just trading pieces of paper that say like oh i own this oh great like we're all going to become billionaires in a few years well the people who actually do the work like let's not forget they are dying of coronavirus or they're just being terrorized in a whole number of ways, and like by like police or ICE or whatever. And like, this is just kind of what we've come to expect. Like, for you know, this is normal to us. It's almost weird to even think about it as something worth commenting on because this is just kind of like the political economy we're used to. where just mm-hmm. like the rich people. They you know sit around in their smoke filled rooms or their mm-hmm. virtual smoke filled <laughs> rooms and just cons- you know create these conspiracies with each other to make each other wealthier. While you know depriving all the like all, all the actual workers and everybody else in the world of control over their own labor of the material resources they need, and it's like this is just the foundation of capitalism. This is kind of the this is everything. This is all capitalism really is. And what is maybe special about our current moment in time is just how how quickly this has been going on. Like how how much it's accelerated, and how you know tech companies in particular are really really good at scaling it up. And so they, you know, backed by these financial interests, they're able to scale. And that, um, you know, means that a company like Uber can go from like nothing to worth several billion dollars in just a few decades, a few years, not even just like a a decade basically. And it's like, that is unusual. And I think it it shines a light on um, the pretty corrupt and venal dealings of just the whole financial system in a way that was you know, not as obvious before, but now you look at it and you, you can't avoid it. So I don't think I have anything like smart to say about specs. I, I don't really know much about them beyond this article, but it's just, they're insane. I think what it, I just like, <laughs> I, it just like every, every sentence I was reading, I just like felt angrier and angrier. Cause it's like, this mm. is just, this is what these people do when they have no real problems in life and they're not responsible mm. for the problems that they've helped create. They're just like trading claims to capital amongst each other. No, and I think that's just suffering.
1: I think that trading claims thing is, like, a really good way to look at it, though, because, like, the core problem with SPACs or maybe the core thing that they highlight about what has happened with the financialization of tech development and innovation is that the concern, again, you know, like you said, it's not about the workers. It's not about the labor. It's not about the technology itself. It's about the returns. I mean, there's a reason why tech is the most uh, dazzling sector of the global economy or the stock market, right? Even in the midst of like a, a, a recovery from the Great Recession that still really hasn't finished. Um, and it's partly because some of these tech companies are straight up monopolies. And also because a lot of these tech companies are at the receiving end of tens of billions of dollars of speculative schemes, you know?
0: Yeah, of it's course. all fi- it's all fictitious capital, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that so it, it's an economy, you know, that's built on, literally fiction and Mm -hmm. and so and it leads to these really seemingly bizarre relationships right where like you 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 Now it's like every day you're seeing these stories about how, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times or whatever is reporting that like, you know, uh, unemployment is booming. You know, every measure of the real economy is is super down, but the stock market is still surging and rallying. And so Mm -hmm. it's like, it's not even like line go up or line go down. It's like line go, huh? It baffles them because. They've bought into this like really neoclassical view, mm-hmm. uh, neoclassical ideology of the economy, right? Mm-hmm. Which every, I mean, everyone knows that you know, the economy and these measures don't actually tell us anything about the, the real material conditions um, in, in the world because these me- these metrics of, of measuring the growth um, of of the economy, quote unquote, are also just as fictitious and just as artificial um, as you know VCs look. You know, creating valuation by spending money, right? Make, you you got to spend money to make money, <laughs> but mm. but it, it, it's like, and at the same time, it seems that every 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 other week there's an article by some high profile economist or high profile um, scientist um, talking about the, you know, the economy or the environment or something where they just keep rediscovering dialectical materialism (laughs) where they're like, Oh shit. Like, so you telling me if, if, if we have uh, an an economic system built on extraction that it leads to extractive consequences Mm-hmm. who that's knows
2: <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like it looks like the the graph of workers wages hasn't been going up even though productivity has does anyone know why like how that's crazy this doesn't make any sense yeah, <laughs> what, what, yeah.
0: What, are, what are workers doing to <laughs> why are <laughs> what are they doing <laughs> it's their
1: fault not, yeah. not much, not doing
0: that much.
2: yeah i it think is. it's 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 tough because we're in this moment that it like to me it feels like this weird uncanny valley where it's possible to I guess like be a leftist and just like have such a clear-eyed critique of everything that's going wrong and yet you can talk to someone who's also like you know well-read and inquisitive but they can look around and they can only see they don't see it like they they just see like oh you know the the neoclassical principles that I've kind of lived my life by they they still seem to work like things don't seem to be that bad, like, maybe there's still a mm. hope, and I, I find this really hard, because there are a lot of people in, in tech who very, very much believe in the whole, like, I don't know, Steven Pinker-esque whatever line, that things are just kind of getting better and better, and it's, like, yeah. um, like, okay, sure, but how, how do you explain, like, everything that's going on? It, it's tough, because, you know, they, they probably have, like, a very rational reason for everything they believe, and, but so do I, and yeah, we you know, we just, we can't agree, so it is a really, Weird moment, um, but I think like you know going to, back to the point about tech development being driven by investors' need for return. I think anyone who spends enough time in tech sees this like mm-hmm. in action in very specific terms. Because you know if you're like a software engineer who say believes in um, the liberating potential of technology, maybe you support like Creative Commons, you support open source, or whatever. There. There are probably many moments in your career where you see those things being shut down by corporate because you know your the CEO or CFO decides like oh we want to make shareholders happy this semester we we want to make sure you know we're doing we're delivering value and so they end up um, hiring contractors and not mm. paying them very well and then you know you your contract your colleague is literally a contractor who has no job security and they hate it and you are just like oh that sucks it's not my job but that sucks or you see that your product is being watered down in ways that are bad for users or they're charging more than they need to, or they like kill a popular open source project just because they're like, this isn't good for our bottom line. And it's just like, there's so many moments during any career, even as like a very privileged person working in tech, where you recognize how harmful the driving forces behind the industry are. And I think, you know, if you spend enough time kind of just being disappointed by your industry over and over, eventually you kind of become radicalized. That's, that's my hope. Um, and I think it, it is starting to feel true. Like I'm definitely hearing from a lot of people working in tech who read my book and who are like, yes, like I've been thinking this for a long time and I just like didn't really know other people were thinking it too. So it is nice to hear that, but it's also just so sad because I think, you know, like I, I believed in the liberating potential of technology, even before I had, you know, an actual rational reason for it. It just felt like, Oh, well, if, the tech is here. Surely it's going to be used for good purposes, right? And it's like that was like a nice, a nice dream I had. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people believe that too. And it really sucks to see all these people's dreams being crushed, like just by this industry that is, you know, the just the the distillation of the worst tendencies of capitalism. Um, because I think like people working in tech deserve better. People who are not working in tech deserve better. Like we all deserve better than what this industry has become, driven by these just very i don't know b- banal needs of financial capital
0: yeah i mean in in this in this way i mean I, I you're you're explaining a dynamic that i i i also hope is true that you know silicon valley is creating its own grave diggers right mm-hmm. <laughs> by 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 essentially uh yeah dashing the hopes and dreams of um these people who do who do get into the industry because they they buy into the techno utopian promise um that is, you know it is a core part of how silicon valley kind of captures um, these minds of these really, you know, in, smart or or um, ambitious people and they think, oh, well, this is the only place I can go to, to actualize that, to materialize those dreams and turn it into something. And I, I've been really, you know, thinking a lot lately about, you know, this disconnect um, between the kind of marketing uh, power of, of Silicon Valley and the actual power of Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, this was something that I think, um, for example, like Cory Doctorow's, uh, you know, kind of like mini mini book, How to Dismantle uh, Surveillance Capitalism, you know, he talks a lot about this, this kind of disconnect between um, what a lot of technology is is advertising. It is also speculation, like the finance, like the finances driving it. It's all based on this speculation, and it never delivers, right? It never actually has the ability to deliver this. Uh, this whether it's advertising, right? This ability, this kind of mind control device um, that can manipulate people and and direct them um, and and implant preferences or whatever. Like you know, these technologies don't actually aren't actually that powerful, right? It's all it's all Potemkin. It's all this veneer. But I do I think that there's also uh, there's also power to take that seriously and make that the expectation of technology of finance of uh, of silicon valley is that it's like all right if you're going to spend all of this effort to to build out and and market this this dream of your efficacy this dream of a new world that you're ushering into existence but you continue to fail to deliver that again and again and again, just holding them to their own expectations that they've set, I think is also has the potential to be a really radical move. Right. Cause it's like at the end of the day, if they're not delivering on their own promises, then it's gotta, it's gotta be something wrong with them. Right. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, um, one of my, I think it's related. There's a passage in, uh, you know, late David Graeber's um, essay that became the book uh, on the bullsh on the phenomenon of bullshit jobs, where right, where he kind of muses that you know in the in 1930, right, you know, John Keynes was predicting that by the end of the century, technology would you know result in 15 hour work weeks, and if you looked at the empirical the evidence or analysis behind what he was saying it, it would make sense, and yet it didn't right and what actually ended up happening is that technology ended up being used to make us work more and extract more value out of us and and generate larger and larger profit margins or returns or what have you and that just got supercharged, especially during like you know the era of financialization and so one thing he asked, I think like a very poignant way to start the essays you know he 's talking about how huge swaths of people in Europe and North America in particular spend their entire working lives performing tasks they secretly believe do not really need to be performed. The moral and spiritual damage that comes from this situation is profound. It is a scar Mm -hmm. across our collective soul. yet no one, virtually no one talks about it. And I also think like what results in, for example, having technological development and innovation, Right supposed to be the leading edge of discovering possibilities, political, social, and economic possibilities. What happens when like, that ends up being subverted for purposes that people don't believe needs to happen or believe are the wrong way to happen? You know, like, What happens to our collective imagination when all the people on the front lines, brightest people in the world, or some of the brightest people are pulled in, told that they need to get over, or in one way or another taught they need to get over a vision that they had for the way that tech could be a liber- liberatory force, and and constantly push towards a vision that prioritizes returns and dominance and market share over human well-being. You know, like I think that that also, I think Silicon Valley has been poisonous in real life with toxic chemicals, with working conditions. But I think it also may have, I hope not a permanent scar, but like a serious scar on our capacity to imagine alternatives because now almost every single vision of the future is had best a tinkering of the present instead of radical envisionings when we know these are possible and we know that like we can envision alternatives when we're doing fiction when we're reading anthropology when we're doing archaeology we know they're radically different worlds but we can't even like articulate them in our own yeah yeah. This is... yeah go ahead wendy no 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 you
2: you
0: go ahead I was just going to say this is something we 've talked about before on on team k. I think it 's something we 'll come back to again and again is this idea that the the real product of this fictitious capital of this hyper speculative kind of mode of finance is the the thing that they are producing is a a a kind of a constraint of imagination right they 're producing um only some kinds of speculations only sometimes only certain types of fictions are are possible or realistic the other ones are not right and this is very much part of the neoliberal uh, project for a very long time whether it's, you know, uh, again to quote old Maggie Thatcher there is no alternative or, you know, Mark Fisher talking about capitalist mm-hmm. realism um, or, you know uh, Milton Friedman, you know, one of my uh, one of my favorite quotes from Milton Friedman, I think it's one that's little known is that, you know, he 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 said, you know our job, and he's talking about the, the kind of Chicago boys and, and this, you know, uh, he said our our job is that um, to put our ideas on the table, so when crises arise, our ideas are the ones that are ready at hand. Those are the ones that people grab to to solve and address crisis, and 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 they've been really successful at doing that. Um, and and by and and but it only exists through getting people to um, either buy into their speculations or acquiesce to it, right? To feel powerless, to feel like, uh, you know, it's not that there's no alternative because the alternative, uh, the the world that they are envisioning is awesome. It's there is no alternative because I can't do anything about it.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think um, this like kind of failure of imagination is something that you really see a lot of in the tech industry where it's just constrained to this particular notion of how society should be structured and how... Things should be owned, and who should have power, right? And like, uh, so I read SoftBank some slide decks for a piece I was writing last year, and I know you guys did a lot of that as well, just like going through other documents. And it's really just like mind-boggling how much they project this vision of you know the world that we have now onto like a hundred years from now, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, SoftBank is going to be a trillion-dollar company. It's just like, really, are we? Good? Do we really want to have trillion-dollar companies? Do we want to have companies in hundred years? Does that make any sense? why do we want that? And it's, it's kind of sad because they're like, they're stuck in this particular moment and unable to imagine how, you know, even though they, even though people like Masayoshi-san can, can imagine that the technology will become super advanced and that we'll have all these great things, like we'll have um, ESP, we'll have whatever, all these like amazing things and technology, we won't have the kind of, requisite changes in political economy that really should that uh, 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 really should accompany technological changes. And it's like I don't understand why they can't see that. Is it just because they're so comfortable right now? like mm-hmm. you know the, the reason that you know VCs and you know, like centrist politicians and whatever, the reason that they can't see a better future than the one we have now is maybe they actually think this is good. Maybe they think this is like kind of the natural order of things, one where a small number of people, are super rich and everybody else is just like struggling. Maybe this is actually what they want. I think, you know, figuring that out is really useful to be able to articulate a different vision. And I think the, the kind of vision that we can articulate in response to that is one that negates a lot of those ideas, right. But One that isn't grounded in this hierarchy where you have a small number of people who control all the money and power and everyone else kind of has to fend for themselves. Uh, and I think this, you know, kind of ties back into um what we were saying earlier about the tech industry and how that, um, it conditions people working in tech to think in a certain way. So, you know, in my book, I talk about how uh, my co-founders and I were talking about automation and we really thought we could do this on automation based startup and like liberate people from the drudgery of work without thinking about what that would actually mean in the current economic climate. But what, one of the things that that did to me was it made me think of people as just like things, like, oh, you know, I'd, I see this woman who's making um, a salad for, like, a restaurant. Like, uh, her job could be automated. Everything she's doing is, like, so automatable. We can get rid of her. She's just a cost. Like, we don't, you know, I didn't think of her as just another person who has as much a right to the world as I do. Um, and I think this is something that is kind of codified in a lot of companies today, but especially in any tech company that's doing anything around automation. Because you have to, if you work... At Amazon, and you're like designing the technological systems that guide warehouse workers. Or if you work at Uber, you're designing the system that you know tells drivers where to go. You have to think of the workers as machines. You have to think of them as like EC2 instances. You know, you spin them up when you need them. You discard them when you don't. There, mm. There's this there's a um framework uh, paradigm from like De- DevOps, like in software engineering, where you're supposed to treat um, servers as cattle, not pets. And I think it is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's like, it's great because it, it illustrates how, um, you know, it is, I mean, in software engineering, it's actually good. It, it, that is a good practice. Don't get me wrong. But I think it, if you apply it to just like software, to um, the tech industry in general, then you can kind of see where this comes from, where you, you're supposed to treat your workers like cattle. Because if you don't, you're just not efficient, right? If you yeah. if you treat your workers, like they're replaceable, like, you can get another one in any moment. If one dies, it's fine. Then you'll be efficient, and that's how you scale quickly. And so, you know, the way companies like Amazon or Uber, the way they work, it's actually very, very efficient. It's actually, they're optimizing for the kind of, un, under the constraints of the current economic system. And so they're doing everything right, according to the metrics of the system. Um, and so I think that, that means well, in order to contest their dominance, in order to critique them, we need a vision that's rooted in a different way of running things that, you know, doesn't just boil a human being down to how efficient they can be, that doesn't treat them as cattle. Uh, and yeah, I'm not really sure how we get there, but I, I you know, I also loved David Graper's work, uh, Mark Fisher as well. Both of them were really, really influential into the way I think. And so, I, yeah, I think it is just so important now more than ever in this hell year to try to imagine Uh, just a different vision not just trying to tinker around the edges of the current system but to put forth different principles that we should use to uh, guide how we live how we live on this planet how we live with each other how we what we want to do you know like what do we think is worth a worthy use of our time Um, and those are not questions we're going to get answered in clubhouse
1: right unfortunately i I think that also that's why i get really angry at a piece we'll, we'll talk about for a reading series because of like uh, the it, it's a it's a survey right of the ways in which Amazon Google and Facebook has subverted most of the infrastructure of daily life and the political economy and the solution is to like bring back the price system.
0: Yeah yeah, right? let's get let's get let's <laughs> get into let's, let's get into that. Let me intro this piece before before we go off on. It, so so uh, I, I this this kind of like technocratic way of thinking has also completely poisoned and corrupted the the critics of these companies as well, or so many of the the kind of critiques leveled against the Googles and Amazons and Facebooks of the world right so it's unfortunate that also a lot of um, the the critique of these companies is. Ultimately boils down to a kind of tinkering around the edges, right? It's this kind of like it's it's this like antitrust free market liberal mindset, um, which mm-hmm. yeah, you know, which is a you know, a lot more influential than it ought to be, and a lot more influential than than truly radical um, critique. So, uh, in the latest issue of Harper's, um, Wendy, Wendy directed us to an article. Uh, by uh, Barry Lynn, who is the executive director of the Open Markets Institute, so this is a crew with like Barry and like people like Matt Stoller, uh, you know the, this this crew of um, kind of you know they would see themselves as kind of like Roosevelt liberals, Roosevelt progressives mm-hmm. um, and so in this in this piece, which is called "The Big Tech Extortion Racket," he lays out. Um, this like pretty compelling case about how companies um, particularly Amazon, Google, and Facebook operate what he calls, you know, these really powerful quote manipulation machines. So, you know, he's talking about all of the really laying out all of the ways in which these companies are able to manipulate sellers. Um, So, you know, he, he says like, you know back back in the day walmart's goal was simply to force manufacturers to offer its lower prices in order to undersell and bankrupt rival retailers um so this kind of monopsony right they're the they're the monopoly for for buying um but now, now that Amazon has effectively killed off all its online rivals, its model is to pit every seller and trader on its website against one another in a carefully orchestrated scramble to be pl- uh, placed first before the eyeball of the busy buyer. So he's, you know, talking about how you know Amazon is able to manipulate the sellers on its platform, uh, manipulate the buyers on its platform. You know, this kind of uh, you know implanting preferences. You know, all of this stuff that we've talked about before is like, all right, we, we, we kind of kind of hold off a little bit on buying directly into the marketing copy of the ability of these, these technology companies to completely manipulate us because that also, it feeds into this defeatist mindset, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, there's a reason why Amazon, Google, Facebook all want you to think that they have manipulation machines. Right. Or, and then later talks about the manipulation of perception, which, you know, lo and behold is stuff like, you know, Cambridge Analytica and, you know, and, and the Russians using Facebook to completely <laughs> sway, mm-hmm. you know, elections and stuff like that. And it's like, all right, on one hand, yeah, they like, you know, these platforms are used for, like very nefarious ends um, by very, by nefarious actors, but on the other hand, like you know, you can't buy so much into into their power because what what are we meant to do in the face of that that world historic power? Um, you know, well for for Barry, who you know. For all intents and purposes, lays out this, uh, I think, a whole, you know, a compelling case about a whole series of economic, political, and social harms, whether or not we buy directly into the power of the manipulation machines, we can say, all right, these are actually harms. And they do exist to some degree, maybe not the ultra degree that he's kind of, you know, in, in a hyperbolic way amping up, but they exist in some degree. So what are we what are we meant to do about it, Barry? I mean you're 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 the wonk. You're the you know you're the technocratic reformer, you're the man coming with with policy solutions and policy briefs and policy reports, right? You've got a no way out of mirror, this. Right. So what, what 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 does he tell us how to solve this? Fucking common carrier laws. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What we have to do is make Amazon a common carrier so that mm-hmm. they cannot uh you know <laughs> Charge people different prices for the same good, or so that they we have to go back to the Magna
1: Carta. <laughs> yeah, go back to the fucking Magna Carta. We can fix it.
0: <laughs> I mean, quite literally, right? Like the people, like Barry Lynn and Matt Stoller, these like antitrust, you know, pro- quote, progressives. They're like men born in the wrong time, right? Like, like, like we're living in twenty twenty while they're living in nineteen twenty. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And it's so crazy, too, because, you know, they do, in various points, offer very important or, like, insightful analyses. I know, like, Stoller, for example, a lot of people, I think, in the aftermath of WeWork got, like, the final analysis wrong, and, like, Stoller came through with a really cognizant analysis of how SoftBank is just pumping up various companies that it thinks can be monopolies, Um, and it doesn't so much care about a profit so much as it cares about killing competition and permanently. And then once you do that, then we can talk about what your business needs to do. But like this fanatic obsession with price discrimination, really, I just can't get behind, you know, I'm on the one really at the end of the day, it comes down to the fact that I'm not, I'm just not convinced really um, a price system even needs to exist. You know, I think all of this comes back down to the to cold war arguments. And then also like, pre-World War II arguments about the calculation debate about if central planning or, or price systems work. But like, really, I think it misses the point that some things just don't even belong in the market. And like our first step needs to be not like returning market logic to like um, various industries like e-commerce or advertising, but just get rid of it. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's the introduction of market logic that allows and accelerates the, Deterioration of like human life and activity and sociality, whether it's because like an ad, because um, market logic makes it fine for like companies to like get into the business of helping structure who you hang out with, learn from, date, or you know buy from, or from the idea that like all of those things should even be commodities. You know why should why should in all honesty like why should anything that a human being does socially be on any sort of commod- commodified in any sense, let alone what a human being needs to do to live and to survive. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Pers- it doesn't make any personal sense to me. And I don't think the price system should be introduced. But like we get this long screed at the end about why the price system is the best way to discipline into being uh- a... <laughs> And so being the citizens that he knows we can be. and that That's Adam's going off. Know
0: That's going off. He's throwing <laughs> shit across the room. <laughs> the blood I, is boiling.
2: I actually hit my head against the wall by accident because I was laughing so hard earlier. Um, <laughs> sorry. But yeah, no, I t- totally agree with both of you guys. I think part of the reason I wanted to share this article is because it started off so promisingly because mm-hmm. he like identified these pretty good critiques of tech. And mm-hmm. I was like, oh, cool. I'm excited to see what the solution is. I've heard him speak before, but I feel like I don't really remember what he was. He was mostly just critiquing. He didn't provide policy. But in this piece, I think it's an excerpt from his forthcoming book, Mm -hmm. he ends the piece by talking mostly about prices. And I was just like, whoa, you brought up a whole host of things here. This doesn't even seem like it's trying to address most of them. So it's very confusing. And I'm going to read out like just one sentence from this piece. Uh, The problem with personalized discrimination is that even as it empowers the masters of these corporations to atomize prices and atomizes society at the same time so i read that and i was just like sorry do you think it's discrimination on prices that is atomizing society like have you (laughs) if i had a list that wouldn't even be in the top 100 i I don't understand i mean okay price discrimination i'm sure it's a problem it i'm glad there are people at the open markets institute thinking about that that's probably their job but also like but that's all they
0: think about
2: yeah, and the weird thing about this um, anti-tech backlash is that it has brought together a whole whole host of people with very different goals in the same right. tent. And so you have people critiquing tech because it's not nationalist enough, right? There are people saying, like, mm-hmm. you know, Google is not working hard enough for the U.S. military. I can't believe Google RIP dropped its TikTok. contract.
0: RIP yeah. TikTok. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, it's like you have all these arguments that are just coming from all these different directions. And I think this is one this is one of those arguments where, you know, we just have to like question the direction it's coming from. And specifically, you know, what is the vision of the world that Barry Lynn is trying to get towards? Right? Like what what does he think would be better than having the tech companies control our prices or whatever? Is it that he thinks we need public services? Like instead of Uber price gouging people, instead we just need free public transit. Or is it that he thinks there should be an Uber that charges the same price to everyone. And I'm just like, yeah. you know, I'm trying to think about this. I'm like, that doesn't really make sense. I mean, like, I don't actually care if people being, are being price gouged. Like, if rich people are being price gouged to use Uber, all right, that's fine. That, but
0: <laughs> The answer is yes. I mean, for him, the problem with Uber is surge pricing. Right. <laughs> that's the problem with Uber. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah, dude. You know, and it's really... Oh, go, go ahead. I was like, so he... I mean, it's just so... It's so apt... Uh, And so telling that he literally starts his essay um, with talking about the Boston tea party. And Mm -hmm. then he ends the essay with a quote from Woodrow fucking Wilson, right? Like that's the, that's the limit of their imagination, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I'm, I'm going to just read this quote from Woodrow Wilson that he uses because it's too fucking funny not to read. So he says, quote, Uh, This is from a speech from 1912 uh, from Woodrow Wilson, you know, quote, I cannot tell you how many men of business, how many important men of business have communicated their real opinions about the situation in the United States to me privately and confidentially. They are afraid of somebody. They are afraid to make their real opinions known publicly. They tell them to me behind their hand. That means we are not masters of our own opinions. Folks, folks, I'm telling you.
1: What does that mean? Business people, they're coming to me every day. They're saying, Don, these very I'm important scared. men of business.
0: They're, <laughs> I'm they're scared. They're, they're, beautiful. they're beautiful, strong men of business. They're masters. They're coming to yeah. me every single day. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson
1: was the first guy to warn about the globalists. I just, I think it's, it's I mean, important. And I'm also a raging racist. So I can't, I, I mean, the idea, look. Also, the businessmen that were talking to him about not being masters of their own opinions. I mean, like, let's, like, if we break it down, Woodrow Wilson literally created, like, the first PR propaganda campaigns world in the World War I period to, like, change the tide of people's minds. They waged, they waged in their own words, a war on the minds of men. Like, to, th- this is such, like, a
0: dishonest uh, use of, of this quote because (laughs) i've got a counterpoint in in four words (laughs) hashtag democrats help people (laughs) oh my god
1: please no (laughs) it's a reference to Alyssa Alyssa milano made a long list of
0: um how democrats help people she started it with woodrow wilson
1: yeah you know the literal fucking racist that like held a Birth of the nation screening <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, no, but I mean but, I mean, to get to the deeper points and I, that Wendy was really drawing out here as mm-hmm. well, is that I mean ultimately, these people you know in this essay the people like them um i mean there's direct connections with our with our critique of Shoshana Zuboff as well, right, in the sense that like mm-hmm. these people are capitalist in in a very real way, like they are self consciously. Capitalists like Matt Stoller, Barry Lynn, like they they identify as open market, free market capitalists, and but and so for them, there there is nothing outside of the market, right? It's they're almost like um, you know they're they're like this weird kind of doppelganger of like Hayek, right? Of this of this viewpoint of. The market as the ultimate information processing machine, which is how Hayek explained it. Right, this this idea that um, in Hayek's essay on uh, what you know the kind of spontaneous organization, he talks about how spontaneous organization in society can happen in a way that's not um, you know in a top-down way because of the price systems right price signals are what spontaneously organize people and so these they, they they've completely bought into that way of understanding the economy and this way of understanding the market as as a device as really like the the ultimate innovation of of humanity is the price signal and the market um, and so for them the the problems that they have with these companies echo the same exact problems that Zuboff has which is that they are corrupting this mm. this perfect technology of the market they are corrupting this perfect device of price signals, and they're, they're you know they're making what ought to be um, the ultimate tool for human wealth well-being into um, the, you know they're capturing it, which which leads to a certain conclusions like saying that um, the price signal is. Hey, everybody. Just a quick note that I had some technical difficulties with my recording during the last few minutes of the episode and had to call in with my phone. So bear my awful audio quality. And uh, in the midst of that mess, we also didn't give Wendy a proper send-off. So please, check out her highly necessary book, Abolish Silicon Valley, and follow her on Twitter, at Dell System. And now, back to your regularly scheduled TMK. Right, so, I mean, for Barry Lynn, like in a really bizarre way, prices, he sees prices as the foundation of democracy. Mm -hmm. So like in his piece, he says, quote, prices play a major role in making the public, the public. Mm -hmm. it's one of the main factors that allow people to stand together in a town hall or Congress and compare personal experiences with one another in ways that allow us to identify patterns and structural problems so that we can make decisions as a community. What the fuck does that mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like this, this essay is just going off the rails. Someone has to stop these libs. These libs have to be stopped yeah. <laughs> before
2: they go too far. So I, so actually, I, um, like I wrote down that whole, what, question mark, your brain on neoliberalism? I don't remember exactly what I was thinking then, but I, just, I guess I thought it was a really weird quote. And just like to continue that, he ends by saying that well-structured markets are also one of the primary institutions providing that basic stuff with democracy, Trust, trustworthy information about potentially dangerous concentrations of economic and political power. And I read that, I was just like, no, markets are how this power does get concentrated. And like, you know, maybe he's right in some sense. I'm sure there's scenarios where markets are useful, but, you know, in the world we live in now, where we have all these, like, the free market is basically out of control. Markets are not something we should be praising or not something we should be glorifying as providing a source of, uh, I don't know, like, counterpower. Instead, they're, they are the things that they're the thing that allows this political power to be constant. You know, it's kind of like what you guys are saying about how they're, these are 1920s men just in the wrong century. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what it feels like, because maybe in the 1920s it made sense to make that argument. But in 2020, we're in all these like, crises that have been brought about by this whole market system, by this framework of treating everything as something to be commodified. And it's just like, we're not going to market our way out of this. You can't just like, apply more freedom right. thinking to get out of the... No, I am
1: very, I'm very anti-market. I think listeners should be too. There's a really good essay by Evgeny Morozov that is a sort of introduction to the calculation debate. And it it also functions as... um, For the calculation debate, right? You know, there are lots of underlying ideas about why prices work best. Partly, people think that prices compress a lot of information about supply and demand and taste and, and, and desires of, of various groups of the population, but also because there's a really fervent, zealous belief in the idea that competition is the way that we discover things, and that competition is the ideal way of discovering new knowledge about goods and services, about technologies and about the population itself. And, um, you know, part of the essay that he has is he's trying to argue... Who, price system is flawed. And he does that one way by talking about these arguments that think data is going to replace pricing, right? And that if we just have enough data everywhere, then price will be obsolete. And I think that you know his analysis of it is useful here in ending up pushing back up against why the price system in Barry's world is not going to work. So when he's critiquing the idea that data is going to replace price, uh, price systems, but also saying why price systems are limited. He talks about how price systems operate on like a necessity of a knowledge system where everyone shares understandings, behaviors, frameworks of contextualizing and understanding things, right? So he says, from read from a Hayekian perspective, the digital economy simply formalizes and improves early processes of opinion formation. Making the reputations of market participants easier to update in real time, or simply alerting customers via a notification on their phone to the launch of a new taxi service, where the driver would be happy to whistle the client's favorite tune. But when you when you think really about what's happening, right, when price systems or information is being compressed into price systems, there, especially in the digital economy, it obscures uh, the ways that tech innovation is really just ways to disrupt institutions, right? And that what happens is prices aren't being replaced. Are shifted, uh, but that collectively legal solutions um, built up over time are being replaced by individual market ones driven by VC or driven by specific firms. And that, you know, with the example of taxi, he'll say uh, the rigidity of taxi fares was not a consequence of uh, flawed. Um, assumptions about price and information, but a reflection of the legal conditions imposed on the cab owners. What they knew about passengers or changing market conditions was irrelevant as they were legally compelled to offer the same service at the same rates to everyone, right? And, you know, this is a sort of the ideal that Barry wants. Barry would look at a situation where you have uh, same prices mandated uh, for the same types of service as ideal, but what we're interested in, one, there are limits to the taxi model, right? The taxi, taxi services, even though they charge the same price, the same type of service, we're limited in some ways in where the service would end up being. Right? And we're also limited in um, their own ways of being compensated. Right, A taxi service, it doesn't matter if um, everyone has to be charged the same way. When a taxi driver drops someone off and drives back to the city so that they can get another fare, they have deadhead uh, miles and they're not getting paid properly for that. The price system has nothing to do with that sort of issue. Right, That's structuring the way that service is provided in a marketplace or valued in a marketplace. And I think what Morzoff argues and what I think we can see when we look at Barry's argument that um, we end up getting distracted from. We're told that what really matters is we need to be citizen consumers. We need to have access to fair services. We need to be able to rely on, like, Amazon having the same price as it does for a neighbor. But the real thing is asking whether or not these things need to be priced in the first place and whether or not we deserve them as a right for being a human being. And I think in a lot of instances, if we did that, we'd have to radically restructure the society you know, what does a society look like where most of the stuff that Amazon – or a significant part of stuff that's offered on e-commerce platforms is not allowed to be offered because you are given a right to sell it? Well, that's, like, too complex a problem. So it's not going to be talked about. What we need to do is just, like, add prices.
2: Yeah, amen. Like and I think – um, I, I try to make this argument in a book. I don't know if the analogy quite works, but in software engineering, there's this thing – so, you know, once in a while, you'll get to a point where the system you built just doesn't really work. Like, you just need to basically tear it down and build it again because mm-hmm. maybe the technology that you're working with has developed since then. Maybe they're like, there's like new versions. Maybe there's just like a new paradigm doing it. And it sucks. It's going to feel bad when you have to delete all the code you wrote. But, yeah. you know, it'll be worth it because the new code base you build will be more robust, more suitable to the current environment, shall we say, the material conditions. And, you know, you just have to bite the bullet and do it. And I think this is something that, like, we all need to look at capitalism like that. We all have to recognize that the way capitalism is now developed in a very specific set of circumstances and with a very limited imagination and that we should think of it as innovation to, and and to like, we should think of it as an improvement to try to tweak or just like even, you know, abolish, rebuild the system in a way that um, it, you know, everyone should pay the same price for the same thing, but instead something like from each according to ability and to each according to need. And I think it's, you know, if you frame it in terms of innovation, I think it's like more compelling than just by saying like, uh, you know, capitalism is, is um, bad and we need to make it more fair. I think it's sort of like we want to improve the system of production that we have. We want to innovate. We want to come up with something, um, you know, more suited to the times that we're in and one that's actually like just better. Uh, because, you know, that that is fundamentally what we're all interested in. And it's just so frustrating to hear anti-capitalist critique derided as if it's, I don't know, like just dinosaurs or whatever. It's like people who just aren't getting, people who don't care about progress. I'm like, well, no, I, I care about progress. I care about human progress. I care about building our socioeconomic system in a way that is sustainable and fair to the people within it. So yeah, I think, you know, basically, I think we need to find a way to like reclaim this idea that, um, th- this idea of progress types who, you know, actually when you, when, um, when you're reading that Woodrow Wilson quote Jathan, I was like, that sounds like a quote that they would say in Clubhouse. That sounds very much like you know, the VC mindset. Uh, but we need to take away their claim to, you know, this idea of like progress and just like making things better, because I think that is what the left cares about more than any other political project. The goal is to use of production so that they are know, just more, more, I can say more efficient, even, but they're just better. And, you know, it's, uh, that hopefully is a, pro- is a project that a lot of people could get behind.
1: Yeah, you know, Graeber had a joke where he used to say capitalism is the worst way to organize communism, and I think we should just be pushing that more, because it really is, you know, like, what capitalism wants, and if we take it at its word, is, like, to provide abundance, you know, a world of scarcity, and to figure out the best way to do it, and it's just, like, the outcomes are fucking awful, you know? If we want that world, we should do it radically in different lines, which is uh, communism, ideally.
2: That seems like a great note to end on. Yeah, I mean, not- <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. sorry. <laughs>
0: go ahead i sorry i oh, know bring, bring us home ed i'm, I'm having a uh, recording problem bring, us home. So bring okay. us home okay so i think you know we
1: there needs to be more experimentation i think you know roberto Unger is just like brazilian uh philosopher politician talks a lot about the need where if you're serious about democracy, you're gonna experiment with the institutions, right? And the and the society we have is one where the institutions are ossified. We're all scared of changing them, we're all scared of offending them, we're all scared of reforming them. But there's never really gonna be anything done if we don't, because they get lives of their own. They convince people to get lives that are solely dedicated to preserving them. And we don't want that. We want people to be uh we want people to be free, right? And the way to do that is uh, mm-hmm. Let's assume we don't know how to do that. We got to experiment. We have to constantly experiment. Um, and I think, you know, I think a lot about what you're saying. What's the best way to get some people who are like diehard capitalists or grown up in capitalism to get there? Uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we just keep telling them communism is um, capitalism is a bad way of organizing communism. And if they want to innovate, if they really want to like you know disrupt. And that what's better to disrupt than like private property? <laughs> Dawn, that's the end. Thank you.